Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, we have a very good and noble guest, someone who has been a key element of the ecosystem for as long as I can remember, and has been a huge catalyst in driving growth in Europe. None other than Mike Butcher. He is currently editor-at-large of TechCrunch, but he's got many hats, and we'll hear about those hats. Uh, If you go to his website, you you start getting an impression of the amount of impact he's had on the ecosystem. He's dealt with things, everything from uh, initiatives that help uh, not just the tech center, but others, such as uh, TechVGs, and we'll learn a little bit about that later. Co-working spaces like TechHub, which have brought the ecosystem together, awards for the ecosystem, and of course, just highlighting the best companies and what makes them tick and what makes investors tick. So thank you for joining us, Mike. Thank you for asking me. I, um, I, I want to make sure that the people that are listening to this really get a, a, um, a view of before you have all these sort of success stories and you know your recent MBE, which is, is an amazing accomplishment, who the real sort of Mike Butcher day one after you left school was like and some of the early battles that you had uh, starting off in your early career. <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, it was um, tough back in the day when uh, during horse-drawn carriages, and um, it was a different different era. <laughs> I was born in London. My mum and dad. My dad was a research scientist. Uh, still, he, he's retired now. And uh, my mum was a, sc- a school teacher. She was from South Africa. My dad was from London, and so I grew up listening to Miriam Makeba and South African music a lot. And um, my family moved to Australia when I was a teenager uh, because my dad had a research grant from the Australian government to work on malaria. So I went to high school there and I also went to university there in Canberra in Australia. And then a few years later, after maybe a couple of years working a job in Australia, I went back to Britain with the rest of the family and started wanting to try and get into journalism there. I got the bug at university when I was on the student newspaper which I helped start, a brand new one, uh, when I uh, uncovered a corrupt practice at university and nearly had my degree taken away because I wouldn't reveal my sources. So um, that was that basically gave me the bug for journalism. Mm. When you hear people approach journalism, you know, it, there's almost always this caricature of somebody who's got these ideals and then when they hit the real life of journalism, they're, they're disappointed by what maybe what drives a newspaper, what drives the media. Maybe at some point you can share some of those anecdotes and how you managed to overcome those or how you managed to sort of shape that in the context that you're in today. But maybe you walk us through some of those those challenges when you first got your job, maybe at the Irish Times, or what was mm. the first thing that you engaged with? Well, I mean, I really wanted to get into journalism. I, originally, I wanted to be a photographer, but uh, I realized actually I preferred the words as well. So, But I, I really wanted to do that. I, I, get it, I managed to get some work experience on a paper um, eventually managed to get onto a course for newspaper journalism and then for a couple of years worked on local papers actually in London, in the UK and in London and that was great fun, I mean in fact sort of three months on a, a newspaper is basically a, you know, a lifetime of training in a way compared to trying to do a course because the reality is so different to just thinking about and talking about journalism 
And so really, uh, but I found uh, during the early and mid-90s, my, I was really fascinated by what was going on on the internet, the early sort of web, devoured books and stuff about it, and eventually managed to get online as well, and heard about a magazine that was being published by someone I actually knew. So I, I called him up and said, are there any jobs going? And, that, and that's when I got into technology. I came out of sort of you know, the general newspaper industry and into technology journalism in the mid-90s. And what was that magazine like? What was the, the key thing? What was it called? Well, the magazine was called New Media Age. Um, it was launched in June 1995. I joined in the um, beginning of 96. And it was funny because it, it was called New Media Age because nobody really knew what we were... We didn't really know what we were doing. We, were, we thought, you know, what is new media? Is it HTML? Is it telecoms? Is it the internet? Uh, what's going on with this thing and the internet? Is How do we talk about it? And gradually a sort of an industry started to build up around it in terms of was this the new medium in terms of online advertising and publishing? Because you've got to remember that there was no was no such thing as a web application. There were web servers serving HTML, flat HTML pages, basically. But there was no such thing as a web application in a way, or very, very early ones. And so it was really interesting. And when we sat around doing the magazine, which was weekly, by the way, so it was quite intense. A lot of our sort of editorial conferences were actually almost like sort of university tutorials because we were almost academic in a way because we were tr- the, the industry was very, very young and, we, we, and there was lots of possibilities, you know. People were talking about you know, one day there will be video, one day there will be audio and things like that. It is hilarious. Because, but Or streaming video, imagine that. Goodness me, you know. Um, I remember even speaking to some web gurus saying, "Oh no, I don't think the web is ever capable of streaming video." <laughs> so it's very, uh, but it was very early days. And it was great fun, and um, eventually I managed uh, to work my way up and became editor of that magazine, just as the dot com boom kind of kicked off. Mm-hmm. So that was a very interesting sort of time in sort of late nineties, early two thousands, um, which was really. <laughs> it was pretty crazy times. And part of the, the drive that almost got you kicked out of school was to uncover the truth. But how much of you as a person are driven by science fiction of the tech world? You know, there's a lot of exposure you have, you know, for the audience here. You're not seeing that Mike's wearing one of the first smartwatches that I think it came out of Romania, didn't it? it was mm. one of the, yeah, it's the Vector. Yeah. The Vector. And how much are you... You've got the Death Star wallpaper. That's awesome. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? Uh, how, how much are you both loving finding the truth and uncovering sort of the dynamics of an industry and how much are you actually also uh, a sci-fi or, or sort of tech geek well i think i'm i guess because my father's a scientist um and my mum's a teacher i have a, a strange combination of someone who's really interested in the kind of mechanics of how something works but also have i guess i have the ability to translate it into you know, speak that, or written the written word, or, or speech that, you know, the average person could can grab hold of. So I've got those kind of two yin and yang things going on somehow. And um, and I and I think the thing I find interesting about technology is the the way that it unlocks human potential, and in it has the potential to make us better as people and as as a society. Um, and I think that was the certainly. For a long time, there was a, a real beautiful optimism about what was going to happen with technology and how it was going to unlock all of this human potential, which had been oppressed by, you know, strange political systems, dictatorships, 
etc etc and i think that was certainly in the early days and really until recently i think when when things have gone stra- strangely skew with there was a huge amount of optimism kind of techno evangelism or tech utopia utopianism i think that has driven a lot of the industry and is still around today so we'll, we'll get to some of that stuff because I think you're you're part of that utopia. You know, through some of the efforts you've done, you're helping bring us together. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> and but we'll we'll come to that in a second. But what happened after you became editor of Large Magazine? I know that you then obviously moved and now you're at TechCrunch. But how, what was the journey between then and now? Well, um, after New Media Rage, I joined a magazine called The Industry Standard, which was very iconic of its era. It was kind of like the tech crunch of its era. It was a big magazine in San Francisco. They launched, and they launched a European version, which I jumped ship to go and be a senior editor on, which was also great fun. But, you know, it lasted barely a year, and the dot-com bubble completely destroyed, burst and completely destroyed many businesses because there was so much hype and everything was so overvalued. And actually, there was some interesting sort of wilderness years of sort of 2001, 2002, all the way up to about 2004, when, you know, if you were, you know, almost being a technology journalist or an internet journalist was kind of like a bad thing. Um, <laughs> people would look at you and go like, really? The internet uh, is just email and websites. What the heck? You know, there's nothing going on. And I think there was a real sort of wilderness time when really there wasn't a heck of a lot to write home about, right? And, you know, and I kicked my heels doing some freelancing and a bit of consulting on publishing and trying to, you know, convince people that that this thing was going to still going to be big and it was going to come back. And it was really interesting to see the early days of blogging coming through. Um, In a way, the early days of blogging of sort of the early 2000s was kind of like jazz music compared to orchestral music. Suddenly, instead of having to be, you know, this very sort of staid approach to journalism, blogging was a brand new way of talking about something in a much more iterative, fast-paced, conversational manner, which was very kind of like the explosion of jazz music. And I think that in the early boom of the, the when the web kind of came back was blogs, um, it was a really fascinating time, content. And then through blogs, uh, they started to talk about, you know, the web as a platform. I remember writing a piece for The Guardian on Web 2.0, what is this kind of thing. Um, and early social media, which back in the day we used to call social software, <laughs> which was, that's what that's actually what it was sort of referred to as. And, uh, and, and that the approach of talking about the internet as being a platform, a potential platform for, quote, applications, unquote, um, was a fascinating time, um, and that's kind of things when when things came back. And I, you know, the short history is I heard about TechCrunch. I was trying to do my own blogs, which weren't really f- fabulously successful in in a sort of very low online advertising environment. And they asked me to join, and I I joined up, and in September two thousand and seven. So by September this year, it'll be ten years for me at TechCrunch, and uh, and I, I and they said, right, what I said to them, what what do you want me to do? And they said, well. Michael, Michael Arrington, the, the editor, said, um, I don't know, experiment. experiment. So, so I well, said, okay. So that's when I started experimenting with what, how we were going to cover Europe um, as, as TechCrunch. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like there had been a decade's worth of exposure to the European tech community and the early sort of technology mm. scene prior to, to TechCrunch. Mm. And we will talk a little bit, I guess, about how you scale TechCrunch to what it is today. But before we do that, 
maybe this is a good point to sort of ask you one question that you've lived like the entire journey through. What is the journey of a founder that is in a place that is not Silicon Valley, that is somewhere else other than Silicon Valley? And how do they best tell their story? And how did they tell that story back in you know the pre-TechCrunch days? And how do they need to be telling that story today? Well, I think it's, it was a really, you know, it's a perennial problem or challenge or to, for people and founders who are outside of Silicon Valley. Here I was, you know, I was kind of like the Arthur Dent of TechCrunch, you know, the one guy left on the other other side of the Atlantic when they, Silicon Valley was extremely well covered, especially as it came back. You had an explosion of blogs covering the tech industry that hadn't existed before. TechCrunch, GigaOM, All Things D, um, Read Write Web, many, uh, several other sites, Mashable. Suddenly there was an explosion of media around these things, and they were all concentrated on largely on Silicon Valley. Here in Europe, we had all sorts of early issues in terms of trying to get the story out. Um, you have, generally speaking, often in the mainstream press, uh, mainstream newspapers, their attitude usually to technology and startups is one of risk. It's, um, oh my God, this is going to fail. How could, how, what do you mean you're going to, um, you know, you're going to raise a whole million pounds or million dollars or million euros for this, this crazy idea? Isn't this incredibly risky? You know, and it's usually quite down. Whereas I think TechCrunch, I guess I took on the, the mantra that TechCrunch had in the Valley was let's support entrepreneurs, let's go out for, let's go into bat for entrepreneurs, kick the tires on their projects, sure, criticize where it's deserved, but ultimately, you know, talk about what they're doing um, almost as a part of how they get bigger and more successful. The more you talked about it, the more these early founders would become more successful, um, you know, to the point where it, it turned into a real thing, and the, you know, um, and so we took that kind of Silicon Valley approach and started to ingest it, inject it into journalism around technology in Europe, and it hadn't really been done in that way before. Mm. And in that journey, what has been, in your experience, the best way for a founder to be able to narrate some of the changes and some of the ideas that they have when, in effect, they're not necessarily pitching in the context that you know, that the mothership of TechCrunch is allowing companies to be exposed to. Yeah, uh, yeah, it goes back to your earlier question of um, how do you be a founder in a place that's not Silicon Valley? And it's, I mean, let's face it, the, re the whole world, practically the whole world is not Silicon Valley. So um, I think what it was for me was, funnily enough, the early days of TechCrunch, I used to think what we should do is we should be promoting these countries and these clusters um, so I would, at the beginning of an article, I would write Paris, like a sort of dateline bulletin. Do, 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 Paris. They're in the depths of Paris, and startup, blah, blah, blah. And actually, after a while, I realized, actually, that was that kind of off-putting. What people wanted to know was what this thing did. What was the product? Um, it didn't matter that you were from Paris. And in fact, it was almost releasing to think of the fact that it doesn't really matter where you are from. If you emphasize the product, if you emphasize what it does, and also interestingly in comparison or in context with maybe a Silicon Valley giant, you know, we're similar to these guys, but different because or better because, etc. That would place you in a kind of a context of product as opposed to location. And as soon as we started doing that, Bang! That was the that was the time when 
and, and still is to this day, that you, you, you can punch out so long as you talk about yourself in context of technology, not where you're from, not who, you, not, not, not even necessarily who you are. Perhaps that's, that might well be interesting, of course, but it, you know, what does it do? And I think that's when, uh, that's kind of our approach um, when, when that really starts to take off. And you had, you had the opportunity to highlight some of the, the best of uh, European founders, even from the very early days. I saw a picture that you put up on Facebook recently uh, with some of the founders from the first Europas, if I recall correctly. Mm. And maybe you can walk us through those early days and, and, and how you helped uh, narrate their stories. Well, you know, I think it was the great thing about TechCrunch was it was this brand from Silicon Valley and, and is to this day that um, it's like a flag in the ground and wherever, wherever I would go saying you were from TechCrunch you would get tend to get the right kind of people coming out real founders and it, we used to have some fun strange strange sort of meetups which in the early days which would attract sort of you know 50 or 60 people one of the earliest meetups I ever did in the UK for TechCrunch I was in Soho and I went to I was looking for a central venue this is long before Shoreditch took off as, a, as an area to be honest with you and uh, and I went to the priest of a church in Soho St Anne's St Anne's Soho now there's nothing of this church left it was bombed in the war other than the tower and a, and a meeting room uh, underneath uh, in the in the basement and I went to the vicar and I said um, I, I'd like to hire this room uh, for a meetup and he said, "What's a meetup?" So I explained, and he eventually said, uh, "I said, you know, how much? How much would it be? Because I wanted a, I really wanted a really central location in the centre of London." And he said, "Well, there is, there will be a charge, sixty pounds." And mm. I said, "Okay, I think I can manage that." Then I went up to the local supermarket, filled up the, um, filled up a, you know, a trolley with beer and wine, and pushed it all the way down Wardour Street in Soho to St Anne's. Um, basically stuck it in the corner to, uh, and and I'd arranged for everyone to and invited everyone I knew or could find basically to come and pitch their companies and at that at that meetup we had Zendesk pitch it's in front of about maybe 70 people 60 70 people um, huddle converse social um, a whole bunch of companies uh, and founders who and you've referred to a photograph um, that I post, posted up in that photograph are probably about five or six really amazing founders who then went on. You know, some of these companies are unicorns now, especially Zendesk, for instance, of course. Yeah. So, um, but you know, you had to get started somewhere, yeah. and um, hadn't people hadn't um, up until that time when people wanted to pitch technology companies, they would, especially in front of investors they would have to pay hundreds of pounds and it was really kind of a racket to be honest with you and here was a media company sticking the head head up above the parapet and saying we'll put it on the event everybody come and just tell us what you're doing simple as that mm. keep it simple and it worked really well mm. and and you run TechCrunch Europe I mean it, from the outside it definitely feels like it's a startup of its own and with every startup there's a low point what was the, the, the low point maybe where you were because you know Arrington gave you freedom, mm. and within that freedom comes the challenge of maybe the mistakes and the experiments are, mm. are rack up to the point where you maybe feel something's gone wrong. What was the low point for you? Was there one? I think, you know, sometimes, you know, there might have been, you can't always be perfect. There are sometimes mistakes made um, in articles and, and what have you. Um, I think more significantly, it was very unsettling when 
um, it was a difficult period when um, Arrington left um, and we um, we had a new editor. It was a bit rudderless at that point um, and people were kind of unsure about what we were doing. There were a lot of people were writing off TechCrunch at that time because the founder, founder himself was so iconic and such a huge voice in the industry. Um, and I think what, what was interesting was how the team that to 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 be give him his due to give Mike his due, um, and you know he deserves all credit for starting TechCrunch, um, of course, is that he actually built such a good team that they were able to weather that storm. Um, we were kind of, you know, we were a bit rocky for a bit, and eventually kind of found our feet and and came back. And it, you know, it's really interesting to this day how. In a way, TechCrunch has managed to kind of stick to its knitting. You know, it's about startups. It's about founders. It's about the investors investing in those high growth, high risk companies. But, you know, shooting for the moon, as it were. And that's what we've stuck. We've stuck to our knitting. We've, we've stayed on that course. Whereas other um, titles often sort of veered away into other things like media or whatever to trying to find route around and try and find traction in in lots of other areas we just stayed true to a course and it worked really well but it was there was some strange there was one or two strange times of course now and again but um overall it's been pretty good and, and there's a lot of similarities between your trajectory and that of founders uh not only because uh, some of the challenges highs and lows but also because you yourself are a founder of uh, Tech Hub, you're a co-founder. Mm. Maybe you can walk us through that that story in parallel with yeah. with your experience in, in TechCrunch. Yeah, how did that start? Uh, I remember very well, like uh, sitting in the office across from Sitar, as, as you remember, and and being when you guys launched, being like, "Hey, should we move our offices to Tech Hub?" Yeah. And you know, it's, it, remember it was like the key where everybody would go. And remember the the desks that you had in the, the, yeah. the Sophia house that is now like torn down. Yeah, the, these these uh, things that would go up and down. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. Total cutting edge. Maybe you can walk us through the, those early days and what was the impetus behind it. And- well, I mean, I'm I think I'm I'm pretty much a dyed in the wool journalist. But I think the other thing is that I'm I'm kind of an accidental entrepreneur because. Um, I'm more about the sort sort of person who I see a problem and I think why isn't somebody kind of fixing that? And I'd I've been um, sort of around the, the 2000 uh, roughly eight ish or nine ish, I guess. I had been I'd been going around uh, the US and Europe and seeing these things called co working spaces spring up. In particular, I'd been to one in Dublin called the, the Digital Hub. Um, and then I came back to London and I couldn't really find anything like this. And I thought, this, this is crazy. Surely the, surely somebody's going to do this. And I started writing about it. I actually just started writing about how somebody should do this co-working model in Europe. And I sort of wrote about it and then nothing happened. And then I, I thought, okay, well, maybe I should try this. I had lunch with an old friend, Elizabeth Varley. Um, and she turned out she was actually doing something similar, but not in tech, but specifically more, uh, just in general, small business. Um, and I said, well, why don't we do it together and let's do it in tech, you know, aimed at tech companies. And she said, okay. And that sort of, you know, it was a kind of aha moment. And, and then we, and what we did actually, how was, how we did it was we, we decided to crowdsource in enthusiasm. So we asked people to post videos about why they wanted tech hub to be built and to, and to be created. And we got brilliant videos. People were posting all over the place. We even got one from Bastian Lerman, who's the fa- subsequently now the founder of Postmates, which is fantastic. He, he literally videoed himself saying, I want Tech Hub, but speaking backwards. <laughs> it was hilarious. So, 
Um, and there was real enthusiasm, and we we basically, you know, took out a, did a real sort of startup thing. You know, took out a small business loan, um, rented out some space, and then opened the doors. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah, there was a couple of tough moments. Then, <laughs> but, um, we for six months basically nobody walked in the door, mm. so we nearly, you know, actually we nearly failed. Mm. Um, it was crazy. Um, we were really sort of the beads of sweat were breaking out on our brow going oh my god what are we going to do and i i um you know we've got this all this space we're not really renting it out we're not, we're not getting enough members fast enough and um <laughs> we were really worried um and it's in, it was a real interesting moment for me because suddenly i was on the other side of the table as a founder and really really worried that it wouldn't work um we might end up in enormous amounts of debt not being able to pay this rent business rates were killing us um we you know just didn't have enough members and then boom suddenly in 2000 in the beginning of 2011 january the first since everyone seemed to wake up and go you know what i'm going to go and be start a tech company and bang that's when it took off but my goodness we were really worried but um it was amazing to to see see it happen I think what's interesting about that story is that it's a very close narrative to what maybe many founders have. And in the case of a New Year's Eve 2011, where people wake up and they say that, a lot of what founders are trying to do is share whatever it is that they're doing so that people wake up and say, hey, you know, this is interesting. Come and buy from you or come use this. And the best way that they know how to do that at times is to engage with the media. Hmm. However, the way that Founders engage with the media has evolved over time. You have a, a blog post called "The Press Release Is Dead." Mm. What tips do you have for startups on how to best engage the media today, and that you have seen be successful as opposed to the ones that you just like quickly delete, delete, delete on your inbox? The the biggest mistake that um, startups make when they are trying to engage the media is expecting that just because they exist, they should be covered. Um, that's not really the case. What you're doing in the media is not is the complete opposite of the PR industry. What you're doing is following a story, following the news. And so the best way to think about yourself is in terms of the context of what is the news right now. What's going on right now? It's uh, March uh, 2017. Um, we've got a very strange political environment now. We've got, um, you, know, you know, in the US and in the UK as well. One of the biggest issues that people are talking about right now is is security and um, surveillance and things like that. So this is a perfect time that if you're a cyber security company, this is wonderful. You should be making hay right now because this is the time to be talking about what you're doing. And there's lots of different kind of scenarios that that appear now and again in the news, where that's the time really to start to really get out there. And, um, and I think it's also important to, as a founder and also as a as a company to think about the fact that you are an expert in what you do, right? And all of us journalists, we're definitely not experts in what you do because otherwise we'd be on the, sitting on the other side of the table. Um, and making yourself a key source of information is a really, really great way of getting a relationship with the media and getting eventually getting maybe getting a relationship with a journalist a working relationship so that you can talk about what you do when eventually you are ready to talk about something really significant with your company you know it might be sort of the usual kind of fundraising stories or new kind of interest you know product product pivot or something when you've got when you've got that relationship then you're able to um you know 
talk to the journalist in a much more frank manner about what you're doing um, and they'll be much more open to the idea of talking to you about it if that if they've used you in other ways before as perhaps as an expert or um, perhaps you've given them stories about other things which you know they kind of they'll remember um, just appearing from nowhere left field with a press release without really knowing who you're talking to spamming the press release to hundreds of journalists not tailoring it to the title this doesn't is this um you know you're going to rely on luck you know i have a slide in my presentation that i'm sure everyone could is, is bored with by now where you know dirty harry's holding the 44 magnum and saying do you feel lucky punk because that's what you're relying on you're relying on luck you're not relying on having a working relationship with the media and if you can do that that is the best way hmm. well part of having a working relationship with the media is as you said, knowing what the topics du jour are. And there's different kinds of topics. There's topics that are um, perhaps start-worthy. And then there's other ones which can sometimes fall through the cracks of, of, of product development. And those are causes like those that you solve through efforts like TechVGs. And I think one of the things that's very inspiring about the work you've done is that you haven't just sat on your laurels as a journalist. Uh, you've gone out and started a company you know, with Elizabeth Farley. And on top of that, you are starting new initiatives. And maybe you can share with us um, the new one, mm. the secret new one. <laughs> and hopefully will be launched by the time you're listening to this. Mm. And also TechFugees. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the sort of guy who sees a problem and I think, like, let's get some people together and try and solve this. You know, during the refugee crisis, the, the height of it in late 2000, in summer and autumn 2015 I thought let's get tech people to kind of think about how we can address the refugee crisis in the way that we are able to you know whether it be through hardware software design thinking um, I was walking along the street in London and just thought you know refugees technology technology refugees right tech fugees let's do it put up a web put up a website put up a Facebook and a Twitter and just got community together thinking Maybe we'll get some interesting people together to talk about this. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come up with some some sort of ideas. You've got to remember that these that um, smartphones are developed now. That um, these refugees are wandering around with androids. You know, there's got to be something we can do with this. And lo and behold, hundreds of people. In in the end, thousands of people got involved. And now there is techfugees little techfugees um, meetups and and uh, hackathons all over the world now, all the way from Australia through to Europe to to the UK. And even sometimes in the US. So, and it was just great. It's like an open source idea, and that was great. Um, and I think I, I'm also quite interested in solving problems where technology is not really reaching the kind of parts that it should. And I was recently, um, in the last couple of years, I've been researching why it is that military veterans. Um, I don't bump into military veterans so much in the tech scene in the UK. Um, and got together with, I managed to get together with a couple of um, ex-forces guys who um, I'm together now working on a project, uh, which we are working title is called Tech Vets, to um, create a bridge between the technology entrepreneurship scene and uh, military service leavers. Um, hopefully in the next few weeks that we'll be able to uh, reveal more details about that. With, uh, but it's exciting to do that. And I, you know, uh, the great thing about TechCrunch is that they give me a lot of freedom. We work on Disrupt, TechCrunch Disrupt. We work, uh, we create fantastic content. And also, it's uh, they've given me um, a lot of freedom to be able to do side projects like this, which 
also ultimately enliven what I do as a journalist. Um, and so it's, um, you know, TechFugees, uh, TechVets um, and TechHub have been a great journeys for me and, and basically made me a better journalist also to understand how founders tick, I guess. Mm. And you've been very good at, at bringing people together around causes and there must be other ones that are in your head boiling up. If you, I'm kind of busy now as it yeah, is now. <laughs> you're, busy, but you're busy, but you can inspire others to take that flag for you while you're busy doing the ones you've set out to, for yourself. Yeah. What, what would you put out as a challenge to the Euro ecosystem right now? And I'm using the Euro ecosystem in the large context, including even Israel if you want to. Mm. But what, would, mm. what challenges would you put out there? What do we need to accomplish in the next... You know, I, I became a, a British citizen only three years ago, and I feel mm. like you know, this yeah. is something I take very 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 close to heart what, what could we do better in the next 10 years to really make this place kind of uh, the, the, the leaders uh, globally in technology and, and in other humanitarian projects I think that, um, that there has been a period of time which we you know we needed to go through of huge innovation and you know we're getting to the point where where you know Silicon Valley and the technology uh, startup scene is able to solve um, problems in the um, developed world extremely easy. You know, I can get my laundry done in an hour. I can get uh, food delivered to me in in minutes there today. Um, what we've got to do now is got to do a couple of things. We've got to get the next three billion online and um, and also online uh, with with applications which really help them. I was at um, the Duke of York's pitch at Palace, at St. James Palace recently, which was all about African startups. And these guys are solving their own problems in the way that they know how, such as creating marketplaces for small small farmers, um, for instance, or get, you know doing big data around harvesting rainwater. These are the kind of, thing, the kind of things that I would never even, nobody would ever dream this stuff up in London, but in Africa, it's incredibly important, and it's also transformational. So those are the, those. That's one big challenge for you, if you like. Mm. Think about those guys. And the second one, I think, is also we have a, a real problem right now with how our democracy is being affected by populism and extremism, and we need to think about how we bring along people who might feel quote unquote left behind or. Uh, you know, fed up maybe that the you know the economic boom of, in in some ways hasn't filtered down to them, and we do we must think about this. And I'll tell you why. I wrote about this recently on TechCrunch. Is that if we do not pr- protect our democracy or our de- democratic values and our structure and our, our system, then populists and extremists will take over, and then you will not be able to be innovative. You will not be able to be a, an entrepreneur because what you will do, we will be seeing as seditious. Innovation is a risky business. And so democratic principles, the rule of law, the enlightenment, if you will, the continuation of the enlightenment has all led to innovation and to entrepreneurship. But that will all disappear. You, can't, you cannot be an innovative entrepreneur in Erdogan's Turkey or Putin's Russia or, you know, in extreme cases, of course, North Korea. You can't be innovative and you can't be an entrepreneur when the state and politics is against you. You have to live in a free society in order to be an entrepreneur. So, entrepreneurs out there, go out there and build things which are going to protect those values and those systems. Or at least, if, you, if you're not concentrating on that, build whatever you build to make sure you don't undermine those, that's the, the democratic system. 
Um, and also, you know, work on your own companies and your own culture to make sure that they are diverse or that they they do uh, that they are uh, um, inclusive. Um, and, and when I say inclusive, not just inclusive in terms of race, color, you know, ethnicity, gender diversity, but also cl- inclusive to working class people or um, you know kids, you know, down in the you know in the local projects or the housing estate who might not have access to any of this any of this world. So those are a couple of those are a couple of big ones I think you should have a go at. <laughs> those are very inspiring. Thank you. We always like to end with some fun questions. Um, first one: If you could undo one moment in your life, what would it be? <laughs> well, um, I would, I would, I would um, whisper in my father's ear. You know what, um, dude? Um, don't get, don't get the job in Australia. Get the job in San Francisco, <laughs> because uh, my da- dad was offered a job in San Francisco uh, <laughs> when I was a kid. And uh, instead of going there, we went to Australia. Now, no, no disrespect to Australia. It's a lovely place, but it would have been quite interesting to have grown up in uh, San Francisco uh, in, back in the day. Yeah, it would have been. Might have, you know, with Steve and everybody, right? Um, but I'm proud of being a Londoner. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. So, if you could have one superpower, what would you like to have and why? Well, I, I've thought a lot about this, long and hard and deeply, but uh, and I think that. Uh, the best one would have to be teleportation, because uh, all of a sudden, no more, no more queuing up for flights, no more putting your luggage in the overhead bins. It'll all be about flitting around the planet um, at will. So definitely that. Was it Nightcrawler and X Men that does that? Yeah, that's Nightcrawler. Yeah. Well, go. I'm not sure. I'd want to be blue though. Yeah. Um, lastly, what's one bad habit you're trying to get rid of? One bad habit I'm trying to get rid of is um, not going to the gym. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I really need to get rid of that habit. Uh, otherwise, that the habit of avoiding the gym, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, hopefully, tech, that's relatively runners. easy to fix, I guess. <laughs> there's tech runners, which I think Dave heads up. I have, I li- have literally... Tech bikers, which Easy Beater I does. I have literally every app on my phone to, that reminds me Drink more water, go for a run, etc., etc. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, it hasn't never quite did. pushed us, right? Yeah, I know. It's still not a prod. But anyway, look, Mike, appreciate you joining us. It's been fascinating to hear your story and for you to share your thoughts. My pleasure. Thanks, Carlos.